It's been since October since I had the opportunity to uh, share here, which didn't feel like a long time because I've been here several Sundays and listening to Seth and Kelly and Steve teach. It, it doesn't feel like there's been a, a huge window of missing Sundays, but then when I reflect, there's been so much that has happened around our family and ministry and life. Um, and there was a, a week, about a month ago, that Eric and I were standing downstairs, and he said, you've been traveling a lot, you've been doing a lot of things, are you going to tell us about any of that? And I thought, oh, you don't know, like we, there has been a lot, there, our organization that runs camps and retreats for kids in the U.S., we've had four retreat weekends with almost uh, 800 students who attended over this, uh, each weekend in November, October, November, it's just normal for us to just to run retreats. They're like, that's a lot. But one of the most significant things for me that happened in that window was that I had my favorite ministry week of the year in traveling to Monterey and to lead a retreat in the mountains for the, the teenagers that are in children's homes or family-style homes that are living in, around Monterey. So 100-ish teenage students. We ran out of camp in the mountains. And for this year, I was excited because it wasn't just like a, a Chris Cox 121 trip. It was actually an echo trip because four of us from here, out of the eight that went on our team, half of us go to echo. So Morgan and Andrew Springsteen were with me. And then for the first time, my daughter, Sunny, got to go on the trip to Monterey. And that, making that happen was an adventure in and of itself. The, the government did not decide to help us very well. They continued to put the wrong birth date on my daughter's passport. And so we were driving to Chicago just days before our trip trying to get the thing fixed. And then we're at the actual um, window where they're fixing the passport so that we can get it the same day. And as they're getting ready to take it back to give us the new passport, I asked the lady, I'm like, is that the, the edit that you're making? And she's like, yeah, we're changing this date to this date, correct? And I'm like, no. That's the wrong date. You're about to put the wrong date on her passport a second time and run it and print it. So no one cares when Sonny was born, I guess, in the United States. And we, we think we could have gotten away with a wrong date on the passport, but we were a little anxious that traveling into another country might be easy, but getting back home might be difficult as we were coming back into the U.S. And we didn't really want our 12-year-old stuck in Mexico while we were all in the United States. But the anticipation of this trip had brought out a lot of emotions for our family. There's excitement that something's going to happen. There's a nervousness, especially on Sonny's side of, I don't know what I don't know, and I don't speak Spanish. Is this okay? Am I going to be able to contribute? Am I going to be having fun? And from the parent side, there's always that safety feel of, is this a wise move as a parent to take your child with you on a trip like this? And Sarah was, uh, as we got closer, even asking, is it, are you sure? Are, I trust you, but are you sure? Because she hadn't experienced it either. And I remember the feeling of waiting until that night we were getting ready to go to the airport. It felt like it took forever to get to that day. And then once the day was there, I was thinking, we just need a little bit more time because we're not ready to go. And we get on the airplane, we fly, we get to Monterey. And then it's a different type of waiting. It's a waiting for the kids to show up. It's the question of will this retreat actually work? Do, do the things that we are bringing to talk about actually matter to the students that we're 
talking to them about? Are we going to be ready? Is, is an activity going to actually work the way we want it to work? Will this game of dodgeball in an emptied out swimming pool be as fun as we think it will be? Which it always is. Really, really fun. Recommend it to everyone. Empty out your swimming pools and throw dodgeballs at each other inside the pool. It was amazing. Will the retreat do what the retreat is supposed to do? And in, in this particular retreat for the second year, we had felt like we were supposed to talk a little bit about the concept of baptism at the weekend. Because for most of the, of the youth that are there, an idea of baptism is just really, really foreign to their spirituality. It's not something that's set up regularly in church. It's not a, a practice within the majority of the denominations that are thriving or exist uh, in Monterey, Monterey has a deeply rooted Catholic background, and so there's a perception even around the idea of baptism. And so our staff in Monterey were asking, can we talk about baptism? And at the end of the retreat, how great would it be for us to baptize some of the students on the side of a mountain? And I got really nervous thinking, yeah, but what if it doesn't happen? What are we setting God up not to do? Like, what, what if he doesn't come through? What if there's not a baptism? What if we talk about this whole retreat and there's not a confession in Jesus? And what if we're off? Like I have that, that worry and that concern that maybe we're waiting for something that's not supposed to happen. But we prepared for it. We went to the site and we're looking around. And as we look at the property, there's no natural water source for us to do any type of baptism. It's a mountain and it's the side of a mountain and it's pretty far up the mountain. So all the water goes down. And we sit at a table and start to brainstorm. What, what do we need to bring with us? Is there a natural spring here? No. Is there some sort of big you know, pool? Can we put water back in the pool? No. Is there a water trough? Too expensive. They exist in Monterey, but that would be really, really expensive. We don't want to spend that kind of money. Well, what's the option? And one of the, the staff raises this. I have a kiddie pool. Great. So we go find the kiddie pool. We find ways to cart jugs of water up this mountain to pour into this kiddie pool that's at this overlook where you can see all the other mountains. It's really beautiful. And we prepare this pool filled with water that we've carried out of jugs with the hope that maybe God wants to do something. And then we wait together talking, hoping, dreaming a little bit that someone that we've grown to care for, one of the students that we've connected with is going to want or long for a new life to arrive for them. I love the way that, that Kelly framed it of saying, I, I want the grief in my life to scoot over and make room for hope to come again. That was the side of that mountain. It's a hundred children who live in the just construct of grief consistently from parent relationships to sibling relationships to even back-to-back relationships and our hope is that it that grief would just scoot over enough to make room that something could come through the waiting and it would be the arrival of what we need So this morning we want to talk about waiting, but not the waiting alone, not the waiting in silence. Steve did a great job of setting us up with this 
idea that this nation of Israel was waiting for an extended period of time, hoping for the arrival of a word, a new word that would fulfill a dream that maybe they didn't even know they were dreaming yet. We're waiting on something. Sometimes it's as simple as a trip to another country with your daughter. Other times it's as deep of a waiting as what Kelly was illustrating to us earlier. You're waiting for loss to actually become reality so that you can restore hope that maybe all won't be lost later. We're working through grief so that there can be an arrival for something else. But what changes stories is often not the idea that we're waiting on something. It's who's waiting on something with us. That waiting alone is different than waiting together. And that it produces different endings. And in this birth story of Jesus that we come around every December as we anticipate the the coming of Christ in human form in a Christmas story that we celebrate, there are a couple of stories of waiting that are actually happening together. We spend a lot of our time on the Mary and Joseph part, the waiting of Mary, Joseph, Jesus, manger, story, silent night that probably wasn't very silent if you've ever been in a room where a baby was born. All of this is the main story, and it's the big deal, but there was also another waiting that was happening, and that is what we want to talk about for the next two weeks, is this couple, this husband and wife, that had been in a really long season of waiting, and we're going to talk about the wife, Elizabeth, today, and then we're going to talk about Zechariah and his waiting next week. So if you have a Bible, or you want to use the one in front of you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 for just a few minutes, in verses 39 through 45. We'll set up verse 39 with the idea that the birth of Jesus has just been told to Mary. The angel Gabriel has presented himself to her and shared what the story is going to look like for her in the next nine months-ish. You're pregnant. No, I'm not. You're pregnant. How? I haven't been messing around. I promise. Oh, glowing angel, whatever being you are in front of me. I promise, I wasn't, but you are. And it is good, and it is the Lord, because you haven't been messing around, is why you're pregnant this way. Here's who it is with. Here's what will happen. Here's who you're carrying. Here's the story you're going to be part of. What do you want to do with it? And Mary's response is to listen to the Lord and to join him in the work that he's about. You can read it in verse 38. It says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered when she was told what was happening to her and through her. And then it said, may it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. We're going to compare that next week with Zechariah's response, which is a little bit different. Then it says in verse 39, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Then verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. If we read just straight through from a Mary perspective in this text, we don't really pull the fullness of what Elizabeth is struggling with in this dialogue with her cousin. In the beginning verses of Luke, we find that Elizabeth grew up in very biblically healthy pedigree. She was from the line of Aaron. She would have been believed to be in this priestly-like space around her from the lineage of her ancestors. And she married a man who was a priest in Zechariah, who also had this really healthy biblical pedigree in his lineage. They were known as righteous. They were known as a couple who would follow the ways of the Lord. And her husband was known in this priesthood as this healthy, holy man who would approach the temple every year to play a role in the sacrament. And it had just so happened that this was the year where he was chosen to play out a role in the temple that would probably only happen once in his lifetime. So this was, this was the year for them. They had been living their entire lives, playing their role, righteously following God, part of their community, and then he was chosen. He was chosen to play a role in the kingdom for once in his life. Interestingly enough, as Elizabeth received her husband back home from playing this role, he came home without the ability to speak. And if you dig a little deeper into the text, more than likely he couldn't hear either. Because later, when someone tries to to communicate and ask him what he wants his son to be named, they write down their answer to him and show it. Which, if you can hear but you can't speak, someone can say, do you want your son's name to be John? And he could say... Or, but it looks like he comes home and he can't speak and he can't hear from the most significant public ministry moment of his career. He comes home and his wife says, How was it? And he says, Right? Like, he's. He's going to communicate to her that I just met with an angel who told me you're going to have a baby even though the earlier parts of Luke say she was pretty old. And he was too. Way beyond being able to have children years. And he's going to come in and without the ability to use his speech or sound communicate the amazement of a moment to his wife. I don't know, there's probably like a husband-wife joke there of how hard it is for us to communicate well already. And then you take our primary means of communication away from us as men and say, here, tell her some good news. And if you flip it, here's the person who's listened well her whole marriage. Here's the priest she lives with that's been able to just be that voice of consistent advice when... She feels like things are out of sorts. Here's the one who can bounce ideas with her. Here's the one who prays with her. Here's the one 
who walks through life with her. And now he's silent and she receives this word. She's going to have a child when she's way past mourning that loss in her life. There would have been a season. There would have been a time. There would have been an age where she would have gone through the mourning of the loss of the ability to have children. And she would have decided to be righteous anyway. Not to give up on the Lord. Because that's seemingly what happened is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God and they walked with him. So there was, there was a time for her where she could have thrown up her hands and said, I'm done with this. Why would we do it all so right? Why would we go through following the commandments? And Luke's words even say that they were, they were just true to every commandment. You couldn't find fault in this couple. So here's the couple that did everything right for Jesus and still couldn't have in the, in the culture that they lived in, one of the most important things in the world in order to illustrate that you were blessed. A child. To continue the lineage. To keep the story going. She would have already gone through all of that. Mourning the loss. That it wasn't about how righteous we lived. Or how sinful we were. The most righteous couple. Was still not having the baby that they longed for. It's good for us to hear that. The most righteous couple wasn't getting this perfect story. And then when she's beyond the age, beyond the season where this would have been maybe fun, maybe joyful, maybe easier on her body, she hears, you're going to have a baby. Her response, she entered into seclusion for five months. That's Luke's illustration of her response. She isolated herself for five months. There's, there's not really more to scripture as to why or what happened, except that in the next verse we have her conclusion at the end of the five months of what she said about her five months. But she spent, when she was told that she was going to have this child, the beginning season of her waiting was to seclude herself from everyone else. Maybe because it's the, well, who would believe her anyway? First trimester, not showing. What's that going to look like? She walks around and says, oh, well, you know, I've got morning sickness. What? You're 90. That's weird. Maybe it was self-protection because no one would believe her. Maybe it was to keep from boasting, oh, look what the Lord has done for me. There was Sarah, now Rachel, and now me. Maybe it was just to keep the story under the radar, or maybe, maybe it just wasn't a moment of great light for her. Maybe this was tough. Maybe she wasn't sure that she could do this. That answer speaks to me in Mary's response to her by showing up, and her response to Mary 
when Mary finds out that her cousin, her older, wiser, grandmother-like cousin is pregnant, her response is to pack up her things and to travel. And this wasn't, they weren't neighbors. They didn't live in the same house complex. If you look at the two locations, they were maybe 100 miles of travel between the two locations from Nazareth to the hills of Judea here. It's like Mary went on a road trip. This young teenage girl packs everything and goes and travels and comes in the door in excitement because she is going to go through this scary thing with someone. She's not going to do it alone. She's going to make the choice not to seclude herself, not to shame herself, not to stand in the darkness, but she's going to open the door and run into the light. So she packs up and goes to her cousin's house and says, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered the home and greeted Elizabeth. And it was Elizabeth, the older, the wiser, the more experienced, the one who had lived a full life of righteousness that responded and said, this baby leapt inside of me. It's a big deal. What's happening here is a really big deal. At that time, over a third of children who were going to be born to pregnant women were going to die. At that time, half of the women who were going to get pregnant were going to die. When Mary comes into the room and the baby inside of Elizabeth leaps, hope comes alive for Elizabeth. He's alive in there. This one's going to work. This one's going to happen. And I know this is the sensitivity in a room where some of us here have experienced loss. And I, I want that connection to be made that this isn't this miraculous story of Elizabeth where she and her husband tried once at 90 and it worked. How many losses do you go through to figure out that you're barren? How many times of expectation and calendar watching did she go through in order to figure out and come to this conclusion? It wasn't an ultrasound thing that happened overnight for her. This was a lifelong journey of loss that turned into a moment of hope when some 15, 16-year-old girl walks into the room and says, Elizabeth. And the baby moved. And hope was reborn. In the life of someone who thought it had already passed them by. And this is just the story for today. Some of us here. Represent the Marys. Of this city. Of our communities of our families, something is happening to you, something is happening around you, something is happening in you, God is moving, there's something, however you want to define what that moving is, there's just something you're not okay with, there's something that's changing, there's something that's transforming, and you've never experienced it before, but you're, you're feeling the invitation, and you don't want to go through it alone. 
something I continually recognize about men and women who are slightly younger than me. I turned 40 this week. Yay for me. Yeah, let's not talk about that. Because uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it at all. It's weird. Is an ease of community that comes in the generations that I see coming behind versus the program intentionality of it in the generations ahead that are older. It's like, if the church sets it up, I'll go to it. That's what Sunday school was for. Fellowship dinners versus, you want to hang out at Burke's till 2 a.m.? Yeah, I know. I heard. <laughs> Good job on that. I can't believe you're here. Like, that's natural. It's that natural emerging generation feel of, we're here. Want to join? Let's go. And we need that. Elizabeth found hope because Mary packed her bags and showed up. And Elizabeth gave back to Mary because it says that then Mary stayed the next three months to see the birth of John. That's safety. That's comfort. That's wisdom. That's love. That's celebration. That's nobody knows what's going on in this story but you and I, so let's celebrate it together type of thing. That's inclusion. That's tribalism. It's all of these things that are coming together in this intimate moment where Mary says, I just won't go home for three months. It'll be more dangerous for me to go home a little farther along in my pregnancy. But we're no longer banking on what makes sense We're going to bank on the fact that God is doing what he said he was going to do in this. So you were alone until I got here. You're not going back to be alone. I'm just going to sit with you. And Mary stays and Elizabeth isn't alone anymore. It's the only thing in the story that actually changes the seclusion of Elizabeth. Elizabeth stays alone. Mary shows up. Elizabeth doesn't go back to being alone. Waiting. What's it look like when we just show up? We're pouring water into a pool on the side of a mountain. Baptisms, we think they're coming. Three students, they're going to be baptized. We've overly communicated this Jesus relationship. I will never say that we, never say that we clearly communicated baptism because I don't even know. But we... We tried. We baptized one student. They come out. Massive celebration. It's awesome. Another student comes in. We baptize them. Another celebration. The third student comes in and sits down on this concrete block and leans back into this, like, I mean, little plastic kiddie pool. Like, visualize that. Back up celebration. And then we hear from the back of the room. Wait, wait, wait. We have one more. And another kid comes up from the back. We baptize this kid. He comes up. Wait, 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 wait. We have one more. That kept happening over and over until the 10th student comes up. And as she comes out of the water and is baptized, her parents, they're on staff house parents they have eight children 
from the most difficult places in the world that come into their home and that they try to navigate life with them every day. The house parents come running up and I'm like, I didn't know. Oh, she lives in there. No, that's, that's their daughter. It's their daughter. And then as they come forward, a light comes on for me. In 2012, we had our first retreat in Monterey. We have sites around the world. And so when you offer something to one site, all the other sites call you and say, hey, can you come and bring that to us? We heard it worked. That happened with this retreat. And our friends in Mazatlan called us and said, would you come to Mazatlan? We heard about the retreat. We want to do it. So we had a scout team. We go to Mazatlan on the West Coast. We call it Mazat Hot because it's ridiculous and humidity all day, every day. And we go through this trip, and I show up at this children's home, and the house parents at this particular children's home work for Salvation Army. They don't work for us, but we are so impressed with their home. We're impressed with the area. They ask us what we're doing there. We tell them about the retreat. They go, please bring that here. We so desperately need that. Can we do it next year? Yes, we're going to do it next year. 2013, we're coming back to Mazatlan. We're going to do a retreat. We come home. We start looking at the legal ramifications of moving the kids from this children's home to a camp and retreat place in Mazatlan, and they're very different than they were for Monterey, and we're like, it's illegal for us to do this. We can't take them anywhere. We can't do this retreat. We're not allowed to go. We make phone call after phone call, and our site director is just like, it's too risky. We can't do the retreat. I remember mourning the loss of this relational connection that I had with these house parents at this children's home of thinking, these are, these are like rock stars in orphan care world. Like they, they're 30 years in. They've been bounced around all over the country of Mexico and from home to home to home. They, they work somewhere for a year, and then their parent organization relocates them to another city. I, why can't we give them this gift? But the door was closed. So this girl comes out of the water and she hugs her parents. And I'm like, it's them. In 2014, they had chosen, we're not going to keep moving and bouncing around. We actually want to invest deeply in the lives of the children that we serve. And so they left their parent organization. And they couldn't find a job. So they moved to Monterey to live with some extended family. And when we found out they were in Monterey, we made an offer and they became house parents back to back and so as Issa is coming out of the water and her dad Asael leans over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says I've been dreaming of this since you told us about it in Mazatlan and I look over and I'm like holy cow I I didn't even remember we talked about this over there in 2012 Everyone else left, and his family stayed, and his daughter, Issa, said, I heard heard your story the first time you were in Mazatlan, and I thought, he gets us. I don't know what story I told. It was random and fun. I was like, really? Yes. Like, that was in, I was on a beach. That was just a day trip. She's like, yeah, I always wanted to go to a retreat, and I actually was angry that we weren't going to get the retreat. And now here I am being baptized at the retreat in Monterey. Like six years later. The only consistency in all of that is that somehow we all just stayed together. 
right? The timeline, the way the story works, the landing, the decision, all of that has God all over it of moving hearts and making decision and when are you going to follow him? When do you want in? Well, all, of, all of that is the, is the God part, but the us part was I'm not standing on the side of a mountain with Asiel, except Asiel stayed and he didn't leave and he kept staying and we kept going back. The relationship stayed. And I'm grateful for that because it's something that this morning as we leave, we can keep doing. We can keep the relationship together. When someone's hurting, we can wait with them. When we're hurting, we can invite someone to wait with us. And then we'll see what shows up. And then we'll see who shows up. But we can wait together. And it can just move grief over enough. To where hope can sit next to us. And someday maybe it's the side of a mountain. Or it's in this room or it's somewhere around the world. That we'll see the arrival of what we were really looking for. Let's pray together. God, I just pray for, uh, for those in this room, including me, that are just waiting. Give the Marys in this room that are waiting with someone the courage and the sustainability to stay. And I pray for those Elizabeths in this room that just have been in seclusion. That we would receive the friend that you send to us. That we would leap with joy. And that you would bring hope back in. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.